the not so good thing is that still the word happiness itself, it, it implies a kind of something that we can attain. I don't really know if we can attain happiness. Happiness is kind of like a byproduct of doing certain things. Welcome to The Ziggler Show. I'm Kevin Miller, and I'm here today with my co-host, Executive Vice President of Ziggler, Mark Tim. In this episode, we talk with Rabbi Evan Moffick. Rabbi Moffick became the youngest senior rabbi of a large synagogue in the United States at the age of 31. He's just released his new book, The Happiness Prayer, Ancient Jewish Wisdom for the Best Way to Live Today. So it's derived from a literal prayer recited and sung during Jewish worship handed down from rabbis 2000 years ago. What's interesting is Rabbi Moffick showcases this prayer as being just as relevant, regardless of your faith, or even if you claim a faith, which in essence to me makes it somewhat cognitive training. I actually ask him about that as much that as it is a prayer. So we dig in, in this show into what happiness, uh, why it's such a big topic today and what causes our happiness to erode. The meat of the interview is in the latter half of the interview where we dissect the 10-point structure that causes or hampers our happiness. He actually started out using that structure. He was going to title the book, The Second Ten Commandments. His publisher didn't like that, but uh, it's not a formula per se, but it is a list of, in essence, ingredients that make or break happiness and a format that we can work through and address and apply in our own lives. That's the big takeaway here. You can connect with Rabbi Moffick at his website, Rabbi, R-A-B-B-I-M-O-F-F-I-C.com, RabbiMoffick.com, and purchase the happiness prayer and engage with him there. But you can get the book, of course, wherever you purchase books. Folks, if you get value from the show, please let us know. Give us a thanks by leaving a review in iTunes. That's the best way you can thank us. Well, here then, Mark, Tim, and I bring you Rabbi Evan Moffick. All right. Well, Rabbi Moffick, Evan, what a gift to have you here on the Ziegler show. Thanks for taking a break from your congregation to come lead ours. Oh, thank you, Kevin. It, it, it's such an honor. And the Ziegler show is, is almost, you know, all rabbis and pastors, we need our own spiritual guidance and inspiration. And for me, the Ziegler show is, is part of that. I mean, I, I listen to it. I love the, the inspiration and the practical leadership wisdom. So it's just truly an honor to be on the show. Well, thank you. And Mark, thanks for getting him on the show and uh, gifting us with his message. Yeah, well, I got to tell you, I was really blessed to have uh, Rabbi Moffitt come uh, into my life a few months ago, and it, it was so perfectly timed because we were launching all of our efforts at Ziegler Family. And I'm sure Rabbi Moffick is going to get into this, but he's a family guy. He's got kiddos. He's got a congregation. He cares about families. And he knows that, that raising families is hard. And he stepped right up to the plate and said, not only am I into this for my own family, but I want to share this with every family that I can. And obviously that made him a kindred spirit to me instantly. And so it's my honor for him to be on the show, and we're, I'm excited about what he's got to share with everybody today. Likewise, likewise. And I want to I want to dive in, though, right off the bat. I mean, just in your, your bio, uh, you became the youngest senior rabbi of a large synagogue in the United States at the age of 31. And I'm just curious as to that journey. What got you to that point? That's, that's, a, that's a significant endeavor at a young age. What do you attribute that to? 
Well, I think I've always been driven, you know, just from when I was a kid. Uh, I did debate in high school. I did sports. I was always, you know, ambitious in that way. And it, I, my first position out of rabbinical school, so rabbinical school is four years. And my first position was in a synagogue in downtown Chicago. And I loved it. And the synagogue grew. And then there was this large synagogue in the suburbs that was looking for a rabbi. They had just had a rabbi there for 30 years. And so I think they were ready that, and he was 70. I think in some ways they wanted a young face. And the synagogue itself has this tradition of being sort of an intellectual kind of uh, a place. And, you know, I, I love to read and write books. And so it just kind of fit together and it, it, it worked. And they, they invited me, they engaged me as their rabbi. They call it, uh, there's an installation service where you're officially ordained the rabbi of the congregation. And I felt like the luckiest guy in the world. Uh, and then I actually had to go do the job and <laughs> realized that it was much, much bigger than I even imagined. Um, so it was, it, it was sort of luck and drive. You know, that's curious to me because as a uh, faith-based guy living a life that I hope honors God, my par- I've got a business partner and we've literally had uh, just, just kind of grappled with the aspect of godly ambition. Uh, I think we have a lot in the church and a lot of folks that push back almost on drive and, and ambition. And shouldn't we just be satisfied where we are and yada, yada, you hear that. So you had a congregation, I'm sure that grapples with that. And yet here you are as this leader saying, I was driven and I was ambitious. It sounds like you have made uh, peace with that. I'm curious. Yeah. Your perspective on that for people who maybe grapple with that some. Oh, oh, I grapple with it too. I've come to accept it. There were times in my life where I kind of felt a little bit embarrassed to be ambitious, but I think part of it was I look at the motives, right? What 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 are what am I driven towards? And I think a lot of it is if you if your message if you're driven for celebrity or simply to get attention, that is not sort of godly ambition. But if you're if you're driven for to to guide people to to support people, to help people along their faith journeys, uh, then it's, then it is a godly ambition. Um, I think it can still be dangerous, right? There's sort of this ambition addiction that can happen where you just want more and more and more, but channeled in the right way with the right sense of balance. And I think with a, a focus on family, knowing that part of the success of anybody is success with their family sort of brings that balance back, um, but it is something I've struggled with and sort of come to accept as part of my personality, part of what helps make me a leader and, and someone who can relate with my congregants is that sense of drive. Interesting. Well, yeah. on that, then your message here on happiness, it includes you going along at that time of life, even going along, things are well married and, and, and what a great achievement things are well, then the stresses of life happening. You recount that in the book and your happiness was in a sense uh, being challenged, maybe a little erosion there. And I, when I read that, I felt like that's pretty, feels pretty commonplace where our, our lives are pretty good. Uh, if we step back and count our blessings, I mean, gosh, what, what do we have to complain about is the feeling yet we realize that deep in, we aren't f- feeling, you know, intrinsically fulfilled or, or happy, but we stuff it. And ultimately, uh, you know, do you think people often in that place just fall into guilt for not being happy when they think they should be? 
Yes, I do. Uh, but I think a lot of it also, one of your most recent episodes I found so powerful where you were talking about failure. And in some ways, we don't really know. We, we have to have some failures in life in order to get the right perspective on life. And I'm not thinking misery is a, is a failure, but in some ways, when you go through difficult periods, it helps you appreciate what happiness means. So I think there's that great quote from uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Time and chance befall us all. There will be times when even the most naturally happy, successful person will go through difficult periods. And I think that's, that's part of the journey. To some people, it happens early in life. Some people, it happens later in life. Um, and I think we, could, we can feel guilty when it happens, but we also, that's part of the role of faith is to help us find that perspective, to help, to help get us through that, right? To, uh, you know, the 23rd Psalm says we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You know, we walk through it. And part of our faith journey is, is, is getting through those difficult places. You know, I, I know the show you're referencing and I, I went home and I actually shared that with my family at, around the dinner table that night because basically it was about reaching your full potential and how you know you're on the road to your full potential is by failing. Yes. If you don't fail, if you don't meet disappointment, you're probably not on a road anywhere near your full potential, yet we all don't want to experience it. We don't want to fail. We don't want to have disappointment. Yet if we flip the script and said, wait a minute, it's not fun, but at least I know I'm on the right path. Yeah, that's so true. In some ways, I always think to myself, if I'm not afraid about something I'm about to do, then I'm not taking it seriously enough or it's not risky enough, right? You know, if, if something just seems like it's always going to be a slam dunk, then are we really stretching ourselves far enough? If I'm getting up to give a, a speech, I, and I don't know how Zig felt about this, but whenever I get up to give a speech, if I don't feel a little bit nervous, I feel like I'm not taking it seriously enough. Now, I know I'm going to get through that, but the, the, the kind of nerves help keep me going. And the same is true with failure. If occasionally we don't fail at something, then we're not shooting high enough. Uh, you know, I, I, love I, it. I do too. I mean, it, it reminds me of something I was given years ago. Uh, the, and, the, and the quote from a friend was, would God call us to something that didn't require him? And I just thought, okay, it sounds pretty basic, but my gosh, yeah. How often do I? Hear, uh, I think authentically hear God's vision for me, uh, and, and see the direction. And then I go and say, I'm, I'm good. I got it. Uh, and I'm off to the races by myself and then find myself later saying, Hey God, where are you? And, uh, that, that point, would God call us to something that didn't require him? Uh, thank, yeah. Thanks for bringing that back back up. And you guys talking about full potential. Yeah. I wish I, I want to look at my life like athletics where we're supposed to push the failure. It's the only way we get stronger. Yeah. It's really difficult to do in my marriage, uh, or, or other sensitive. <laughs> we don't like to do it in our marriage. That's for sure. No. Nor do we like to do it with our kids. I mean, yes. do, does anyone want their kids to, to suffer or to deal with difficult circumstances? I mean, I guess theoretically, but we don't want our kids to go through difficult experiences. We don't want them to feel homesick if they're at camp or something. Uh, we want to protect them. And yet we also know that that's the way they grow. That's the way they, they, you know, adapt to the real world, but we don't, we wouldn't choose to have them go through it. If we could stop it, it's, it's kind of a catch 22, but it's, but it happens. I always think, you know, it's going to happen. So if I can protect them for a little bit, great, I'll protect them. But, you know, I also want to be there alongside them when they go through those experiences, when they go through failures. 
You know, Evan, that's, it's really interesting. That's something that we've hit on multiple times in the Ziggler shows. We're talking with people who have achieved a high level of success and they often, actually it was Zig who talked about the study at some point where 80% of CEOs, top CEOs of big companies around the, the world or the country were found to have come from abject poverty, you know, significant poverty, wow. or they had a sibling with a handicap and these, these hard things that happened. And yet what we've seen is a lot of times these people who went through such hard stuff, it's strength. If it didn't overcome them, it strengthened them from that. They achieve this great thing. Then they have kids and they can protect them from everything. And often those kids uh, to some degree don't end up producing a whole lot. And so you're talking about something as a father I've grappled with. Yeah. I don't want to throw my kids in the ditch and make life hard, uh, purposely, but yeah, it's, that's a difficult place. It is so difficult. And it's something we can't really control. This is related to what, what Zig said, that study. I mean, if you look at a lot of the presidents of the United States, a lot of them didn't really have fathers who were present. And it's, you know, President Obama, President Clinton, even Ronald Reagan. I mean, they're, they're, in some ways, they're, they're, there's this kind of drive that, that is, it comes from that. And it's sort of, I mean, that, that may be going into too deep psychological stuff. But there is that um, there is that when you are an involved parent, you want to protect your children, and sometimes it can be too much. But we're not going to stop. It's like a natural. It's part of the. It's part of the love. But we we have to be mindful of it. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. So we need to do another show on that one. We'll, we'll, yeah, we could do a whole show. I was going to say that same thing. That's so big. my gosh. That's well, big. so okay. So on this aspect of, of happiness, I when I got your your book, um, Evan and. and I was already interested in this. I'm going to call it the happy phenomenon in a sense. I had browsed through an airport bookstore months back and saw multiple books on with with the word happiness in them, literally. Uh, And it makes me curious as to what you think this is saying about the state of our culture right now. Well, I think it's saying, I think it's saying a good thing and a not so good thing. I think the good thing is we, as a, as a culture, we begin to see that wealth and status don't lead to happiness, right? We, we, we kind of know, I mean, if happiness was just as easy as making a million dollars a year, then that's what we would focus on. Uh, so I think we recognize that happiness is more than just that, that there are certain things like gratitude uh, and kindness that can lead us to a happier life. Part of that is also this whole school of positive psychology, which has had a, a large impact now on, on, on the church world and, and you know, businesses. So I think that is, that's a good thing, that, that happiness is something that is, is being studied more deeply. The not so good thing is that still the word happiness itself, it, it implies a kind of something that we can attain. I don't really know if we can attain happiness. Happiness is kind of like a byproduct of doing certain things. But when all these books come out about happiness, it kind of creates this promise that, that we can, that there's a, you know, even my own book, in some ways, I say, you follow these 10 things, you'll be happier. But I also say throughout the book, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a process and where there will be times in our life that will be difficult. This is not a guarantee that do follow these five things and you'll be happy. Uh, we can't think that way. Happiness is a byproduct of a life well-lived. So the good thing is there are certain practices that work. The, the, the downside of making so many books promise happiness is that it's not that easy of a promise to attain. Okay. So this prayer, and I'm going to give a shot at actually pronouncing it. Uh, Elu Daviram. 
How close am I? Close. Devarim. 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 Okay, yeah. this prayer. So interesting. And you, it's really interesting when you also, it's a prayer, and yet you say it's relevant regardless of your faith, and you say it is not a typical prayer in that you just say it. It is an active prayer because you live it. The magic is not in the words. It is in the way you use the words to change yourself, which to me sounded more like cognitive training than a spiritual exercise. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's both. I think it's such a good observation. I think it's both. I mean, prayer, you know, we, we, we pray to God and we pray, you know, we, we, but I think the act of prayer itself has an effect on us and reminding ourselves of certain truths and that saying this prayer reminds us of what actions really lead to a happier life, a more fulfilling life. So it's both. But I think a lot of prayers are play that same role. I mean, in some ways, saying a prayer brings us comfort. I mean, saying the Lord's Prayer can bring people a sense of peace and acceptance. So I think prayer always has some kind of behavioral impact on it, on us. And this prayer happens to to be really focused in that area. And that's also one of the interesting dimensions of Judaism. Judaism is, is very much a religion about doing um, and, and, and sort of active-based religion. Deed is sometimes more important than creed. So the, the, the deed, the, the works, the good works focus of the prayer is, is, is quite Jewish in its orientation. Okay. So you wrote, you went on there to write, happiness is not a destination, a thing, it's a way of life. And then each of us can discover meaning in our struggles, our choices, and our achievements. So I want to ask about that first part. We can discover meaning in our struggles. I think we've all heard that to some degree. I mean, we were all just talking about it in regards to kids and protecting them from the struggles. And yet that's what builds strength also. But I know we got a big audience here and people who've gone through a lot of things. And I think sometimes that perspective is a hard pill to swallow for people who feel that they were a victim of something or, or even just uh, finding the redemption and bad choices. And I literally was having this discussion at the dinner table uh, a couple nights ago with my kids talking about some things that I regretted in my past. And one of my kids said, so do you regret where you're at today, daddy? I said, well, no, no, not at all. I, and, and that speaks to God's redemption, but there are some things that happened in the past. If I could go back, I mean, they still pain me. If I could go back and fix some of the, the, the errant decisions that I made where I think that I wasn't pursuing God's will very well, I, I definitely would. So I, I'm asking you to reconcile a little bit that we think we could discover meaning in our struggles for those who hear that and go, that's really difficult. Um, help reconcile oh. that a little bit. Oh, I, I think it's so difficult. And I think that there are two ways of doing it. I think, first of all, you know, the power of grace is so enormous, you know, in, in, in both Judaism and Christianity that accepts us as who we are. So coming to terms with ourselves is a, is a, is a healthy thing. So being open about past mistakes and, 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 and what we did and bringing that to God. In some ways, God is the only person we can bring that to. We can have a conversation with God that we can't really have with anybody else. So I think accepting, accepting our past is a big part of it. And the second thing, and I actually talk a lot about this in the book. I, I forget which chapter. It might have been chapter one, but I talk about the psychologist D.A. Pennebaker, who, uh, who really is the person who founded the, the power of, of journaling to reshape our thoughts. So sometimes if we talk about difficult experiences and we just start writing about how we feel about them, we make meaning out of it. 
we, we begin to understand how a certain experience shaped who we are today. And if we can accept who we are today, then those experiences do help us help us come to terms with the past. It, we may still feel a tinge of shame. I mean, some people do, but I think we do, we can make meaning out of almost anything. I mean, one of the examples I talk about in the book is when Sheryl Sandberg, when her husband, you know, died at, at age 50, you know, she's a COO of Facebook and her husband died at age 50 on a treadmill. I mean, it was such an enormously painful experience. And yet she's been able to make meaning out of it and in, in how she, it changed her whole mindset about work policy and, and, and taking time off for loss and, and, uh, understanding people's family needs in in her in her workplace in Facebook and in other technology companies. So I think we can try to find some meaning in almost anything. It doesn't mean it's easy, and but it means we have to stay focused on it. And there are techniques that I talk about in the book: journaling, talking with others, counseling. These these acts can help us find that meaning. So you know, you you talk about something. The natural tendency of us is when something painful like that is to press it down, <clears throat> to hide it, to push it down as far as we can. That's our natural tendency. So you've given some ideas on, on what to do about it. And I know journaling is not that popular anymore, but effective, talking to other people. You know, what, what specific encouragement could you give to someone who is experienced that, that maybe doesn't have someone close to talk to, maybe they're not a writer, but but it's worth it. Like it's it's worth that putting yourself out there and, you know, and, and talking about it. Cause that's the big thing is the way I look at it is it's going to find itself out. Why not be in control of how it comes out? Because otherwise it's just going to fester and brew out, you know, later in life. So do right. you have any, anything in there to that kind of goes along that lines? Well, I think one of the first things is almost listening to podcasts, listening to podcasts and reading books and seeing that others have gone through similar things. I think understanding that what we are going through is not totally unique to us. I mean, the act itself is unique to us, but other people have gone through shame. Other people have gone through loss. You know, listening to the podcast that that we talked about earlier on failure. It, I mean, to me, I started, I think, Kevin, you were talking about um, biking, right? In, 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 what was it in Norway or Holland. wherever it was in, in Holland. Yeah. And, and you were talking, and I've had experiences like that too, not like on a professional biking level, but, uh, uh, and so understanding that other people have gone through what we've gone through. I think is one part of it. A second thing is reaching out to somebody, even if we don't have somebody close. I mean, it, as I've been launching this book, um, you know, I had a, I've, I have a launch team of sort of pre-readers, people that have read it uh, and will, you know, write endorsements and blurbs and so forth. And I've gotten at least a dozen emails from people. One, one woman whose son died from a heroin overdose. And I was just so, and I, and I tried to counsel her as best I could. Um, but I thought it took a lot of bravery for her to reach out. And I think there are people who will listen to us wherever we are. So finding inspiration in other people's stories and then reaching out to, to people that, that can help us through. I think those are at least two things we can do. It's interesting. I mean, that was, that was a, a main thing as even in recent years, I grew up with this 
personal development, you know, bettering yourself, uh, mindset. And even from a coaching standpoint, we coach, we look at where we are now, where do we want to get to? And that's all that is important. And after a lifetime of doing that and then realizing I'm having these same hurdles, I finally had some wisdom given to me to, but you need to go back and, and look at what, what happened in the past. Look at some of the past things that happened, uh, just so that you can discern what's going on and causing these, these errant things happening over here. And that, that was new for me. Uh, again, I, I was, it was just always just leave it in the past. It wasn't, I didn't even feel like I was stuffing. It's just, it happened there. I'm going forward and it sounds valiant. And I, I stumbled because of it. Yeah. You know, what, what you just said actually reminded me, this is a much broader story, but I think some of our listeners can, can relate. I mean, in Judaism, there were a whole bunch of, of Jews who survived the Holocaust, you know, in the 1940s. And they came to America, they went to Israel, they went to very different places, and they didn't really talk about it at all. They were focused on rebuilding their lives. And they, in a sense, not really denial, but just sort of setting the past in the past. But then starting in the 1960s, and it's kind of gone on for you know, 40, 50 years, there's been so many memories and books and museums. And that's been kind of a healthy process that for a while, it was just leave the past in the past, that pain. But coming to terms with it actually helps people understand what happened and trying to prevent it from happening again. And it's been a healthy process. Friends, I hope you're getting value from this interview with Rabbi Evan Moffick. The best is yet to come. Again, you can connect with him at rabbimoffick.com. That's R-A-B-B-I-M-O-F-F-I-C.com. I want to thank our show sponsors and I have two free offerings for our Ziegler audience from them. First is fresh books. So to all the freelancers listening right now, and I know we have a lot in this Ziegler audience if you could reclaim up to 192 hours a year of your precious time, would you do it? Well, of course you would. If you're doing the math, 192 hours would save you two working days per month. Who wouldn't benefit from an extra two days a month? I know I would. Our friends at FreshBooks make ridiculously easy cloud accounting software for freelancers. By simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, getting paid online, FreshBooks has drastically reduced the time it takes for over 10 million people to deal with their paperwork. If that's not enough incentive, the FreshBooks platform has been rebuilt from the ground up. They've taken simplicity and speed to an entirely new level and added powerful new features. If you've not used FreshBooks, now would be a great time to try because FreshBooks is offering an unrestricted 30-day free trial for all Ziggler listeners. No credit card required. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash Ziggler and enter the Ziggler show, inspiring your true performance in the how did you hear about us section. Again, that's freshbooks.com slash Ziggler. Zip Recruiter. If you are hiring, do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Finding great talent can be tough. We all know that. With Zip Recruiter, you can post your job to a hundred plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why Zip Recruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, Zip Recruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on Zip Recruiter get a quality candidate through the site within just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. You can find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, Ziggler listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. 
That's right. Totally free. Just go to ziprecruiter.com slash Ziggler. That's ziprecruiter.com slash Ziggler. Interesting. Well, you, you cite, um, you cite in the book, the information and media age that we're in where we are minute by minute bombarded with offers of something better to make us happy. And yeah. I, 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 you know, I thought really distinctly, I can remember back, we're just having kids. We bought the minivan. It was kind of later <laughs> model than normal. It was pretty darn nice. And then boom, there comes the minivan with the doors that open automatically. And now, you know, how can we live with this inferior car? And it's so difficult. I mean, we, we can't escape comparison. Uh, and yet we don't want to be complacent either. And, you know, in that we're, we're, we can't get away from the media. So how do you counsel people in dealing with happiness and looking at the media and, and everybody's doing brilliant on Facebook and everybody's uh, uh, succeeding? At least we, <clears throat> we think so. Um, I, I, how do we deal with that with, with the comparison? I mean, we can't escape it. Oh, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Right. FOMO, fear of missing out. Yeah. P- people post on Facebook and you see, I mean, as a parent, I see that too. You know, I'll look at somebody's Facebook page and, you know, on a Saturday or Sunday, oh, first we took our kids to soccer practice. Then we went to the art museum and then they had a piano lesson. And then, you know, we went to dinner and they sat very politely and ate with all their forks and spoons. And you're thinking at <laughs> the parent self, I'm thinking to myself, um, well, we kind of played outside for a little while and um, maybe went to see a movie, you know, and, and then we're, I'm comparing myself uh, to these what seems like a perfect parent. Um, but I think there are two ways to do it, or at least two ways. First, we have to recognize that what people put out there is is a show. You know, people aren't totally authentic and honest on Facebook and recognizing that uh, and trying to find people in our lives who are real, who accept us for who we are. And then another thing that I have found immensely meaningful in my life is in Judaism, it's the Sabbath, Shabbat, uh, but it, it can be true for, for any faith. Take at least one day a week. And make that family time where it's sacred, where you're focused on one another, where you put down phones. I mean, I have a friend who's a pastor in Atlanta, and he basically does a Jewish Sabbath too. He and his wife, they have three kids. They take all their cell phones, all five of them. They put it in a box and they, and they stick it in a closet for about 24 hours from Friday night to Saturday night. And they focus on dinner together, time together, doing things as a family. And that can work wonders because- Kids want to be close to their parents. They, they want to be close to one another. And if we can tune out all the noise, we don't have to tune it out 24-7. But if we do it, you know, 1-7 uh, or 24, uh, 24 every seven days, it can make a huge difference. And I found that to be true in my family and in people I know. I, I love that. And I, I've heard it said that, uh, you know, Facebook is the highlight reel of someone's life. And so, and if you look at it that way, then, you know, you're, you're missing so much of it. And, and yeah, the technology we're finding, you know, this, this generation of young people that we all have, by the way, uh, they're being called the iGen because they've only known iPhones mm-hmm. and they're finally getting some research on the impact that that's having. And so I think it's a gift to give our kids, our family back that you know, that, that real communication, that real interaction, the real relationships, not via technology. So love, love, love your advice there. Yep. Well, you, uh, not surprisingly give great focus to faith as a necessary ingredient for happiness. And I like where you cited, uh, Jonathan Sachs, who was chief rabbi uh, in great Britain, who said, 
and this is quoted right out of your book. Happiness is the ability to look back on life and say, I lived for certain values. I acted on them and was willing to make sacrifices for them. I was part of a family embracing it and being embraced by it in return. I was a good neighbor ready to help when needed. I was part of a community honoring its traditions, participating in its life, sharing its obligations. It is these things that make up happiness in this uncertain world. And as I read that, I read, read it a couple times and mm. it felt like to some essence it's saying I can look back at, I made healthy, positive decisions and actions and I'm and proud of myself for the, for the most part. Is that too simplistic? No, I think that's really good. And I think what that quote that, that you pointed out picks up on is happiness is sometimes, oftentimes different than pleasure. Pleasure is a great meal that we can enjoy with our spouse or, you know, a great piece of chocolate cake or, you know, and these are wonderful. These are important things to have. So I do think proud of ourselves. Absolutely. Um, because we know we, we struggle to do the right thing. Well, I, I want to get into uh, the structure of the prayer and these, these 10 things, but right before you, you listed those in the first, the first time you did, at least in the book, you had the science of happiness with four mm. ingredients. It's kind of an encapsulation. Uh, and, and I'll read them real quick, but then I want to ask you a question. What number one is positive emotion, a person's satisfaction with life, life view in essence, uh, engagement, which is, which I really like that. It's, it's having something that you can get in the flow with an engaging activity. Uh, the third one was meaning, having a purpose that we're part of something larger than ourselves and then accomplishment. And you actually, and the word in there was actually used was mastery, something that you can, can master. And my, and is those somewhat of a, an encapsulation of your 10 things in those four, where do you feel that we as a culture are generally today's age, whether it's the iGen or, or whatever, we're the most unaware mm. or mm, tapped in the least. Yeah. I think was gratitude. Did, did, uh, did we talk about gratitude in that, the, the positive? Well, maybe so. Yeah, I just took an excerpt out yeah. of there. So that may have been in there. Sure. I, think, I think gratitude is something that we are still lacking in this. In, 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 in this I generation, I think kids take a lot for granted. Um, at least if, 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 you, if you, I mean, not every kid. If you grow up in a decently comfortable environment where your parents can, can provide you with, you know, a uh, uh, sports, you know, phones when you reach a certain age, I think sometimes kids take, um, struggle for, for granted, you know, that's the whole concept of, you know, everyone's a winner. We give everyone a trophy. And I think that's good for some, sometimes, but I do think it creates certain entitlement that, that can be dangerous uh, in the long run. And part of the journey to happiness is struggle. And that's where mastery comes in. I always tell my kids, you know, uh, I want them to do well in school, but I also want them to find something that they really love, something that brings out the best in them, you know, and it's, and unless they're like a superstar talent, it shouldn't be like being able to sing pop songs or making great videos on YouTube. Like yeah. it should be something that is, um, that, that, that's in a way practical, but that's also, they can create their passion. So for my oldest daughter, it's dance for my youngest. It's, uh, she loves fashion and, and she's very creative in that way and, and music and so forth. I think mastery says we get satisfaction from figuring out how to do something well. We don't have to be the best in the world, but if we know that we put in our pride to do something well, uh, that that's important. And, and that also can help 
move away I, from this kind of celebrity culture. I mean, we, we, we live in a, in a world where so many celebrities are held up as the greatest thing in the world. Uh, and, you know, oh, he's got 10 million YouTube followers. And so trying to, I think that's a danger for the generation, this focus on celebrity. So figuring out how to be grateful for what we have and also how to master something that's unique to us that we can do well, that's, th- those I think are two important challenges. All right, then the structure of this prayer, I wrote the list down, but I honestly, I, I went through it real briefly. I did not want to read each one completely. So I could hopefully come with the same possible perspective and questions that our audience will. So you lead off saying, how will you find happiness in this world and peace in the world to come? And it's by learning these wisdom practices from your ancestors. And number one, honor those who gave you life. Okay. So your parents, my first thought aside from, well, sure. That's a nice thing to do, uh, righteous even, but why other than that, why is that a key ingredient? It's not one I would have thought of for a key ingredient for happiness. Well, it's an interesting one. And that's the only, the original title for this book was the other 10 commandments. Uh, and then my publisher changed the title, but they, they, there are 10 of them, 10 of 10 practices. This is the only one that actually also appears in the Ten Commandments in, in the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, and in the Ten Commandments, uh, this is the only one that has a reward attached to it. You shall honor your father and mother so that you live long on the land which the Lord your God has given you. So I think that is a clue into why this practice is so important in its gratitude. This is that practice. When we honor our father and mother, when we honor the people who gave us life, we are looking at life itself as a gift. That, that life is something that we, we didn't really earn it in any way. We came into this world. And if we see this as a gift that was given to us, we can better appreciate it. We can live more fully. So I think honoring father and mother is a kind of training for how we should look at the world. And this is true. This also helps us understand struggle. I mean, a lot of people don't have the greatest relationships with with their with their parents. And you know, we're, we're of a generation. The three of us talking here, we're, we're trying to really be the best parents we can be. But there are a lot of people who don't have who, who've had troubles. Uh, and this this commandment or this practice helps us understand that even with those troubles, of course, there are exceptions with abuse and so forth. But even with that, we owe something to the people who, who gave us life and we honor them and we honor the future by doing that. Okay. Number two, then be kind. And yeah. I know you mentioned this somewhere that you're a fan of Shanti Feldhahn, who was our, oh, yes. uh, our, yeah, our guest in show 464. And she wrote the book, of course, The Kindness Challenge. And she helped us see that most of us think we're kind, but nearly all of us have seemingly benign aspects of ourselves that do speak unkindness to others. And I assume this is why Be Kind uh, made the list. Second place here, actually. The reality that we aren't as kind as we tend to think. Yeah, we aren't, but we can be. And part of us wants to. Part of us wants to be kind to others. Uh, And sometimes we don't choose to be as kind as we can be because we're afraid of rejection. Uh, uh, there was a wonderful book I read about kindness. Ashanti's was great. And there was another one I read uh, that talked about the, vulnerab- the, the way kindness exposes us to vulnerability. What if somebody rejects our, our, uh, our outreach? Uh, what if we want 
sometimes I've seen that even with my own daughter, she'll, she'll, she'll go up to a kid and try to be friends and the kid's just not interested. And that shuts her down. And that's a danger with kindness. Uh, But I think in the long run, if we are kind, we're happier. I mean, that's in, it's almost inevitable when we do something for somebody else. And even if, even if we don't witness, they're appreciating it. We feel, we feel better about ourselves. We hold the door open for somebody. That's a very simple act. We um, just say a word of kindness to somebody who is in need. We feel better about ourselves at, at my synagogue. All of our students uh, when they turn 13, have to do, we call it a mitzvah project, where they do a, a, an act of kindness for the community. And inevitably, they are so happy when they're doing it. Some of them do buddy baseball, where they uh, play uh, with, with kids who are handicapped in one way or another and help them do sports. And it, it just makes them feel so good. So it's in some ways, being kind can, can be selfish, but it's a, it's a wonderful selfishness. And, and that's what's so interesting to me that I were so ingrained. I'm so ingrained on the end result. I be kind so that X, and of course it's an outward to whoever I was kind to, instead of thinking of what it does to my own psyche in essence. So big deal yeah. there. So number three, keep learning again, something we know is good, but I wouldn't think of it off the cuff in regards to a primary happiness ingredient. So I mean, well, yeah, when you say you should keep learning, it sounds like an altruistic chore somewhat. So what's important about it again, in regards to why does that equate to happiness? I, because it, it keeps our minds open. I mean, I think, I think Zig talked about this. You, you know, what you put in your mind shapes what you, who you are and what mm-hmm. you do and how you can change. And a lot of people really do stop learning after they finish school, uh, and it's really sad because we get caught up in certain ways of thinking and those ways of thinking can make us miserable. But if we can keep learning and growing, we give ourselves more opportunities to succeed, to build new relationships, to uh, see things from another person's point of view. It's um, it, it, to, to try something new. I tell a story in the book about a, a guy who took up tennis in his late fifties and it just totally changed his life for the better. So it doesn't have to be like we're just doing more book learning. I see learning as anything to grow our skills in our mind. And it, it, it allows us to just grow as human beings, which ultimately makes us happier. Uh, and I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we, it, that's part of life is learning. And with this information age we're in where we're bombarded with information, I literally meet people that think they know all they need to know. And they're really depriving themselves of the real essence of life, which is to learn and learning and to constantly be learning. And, and we, we, when, when you learn that, you know, and, and here's what I got to say about which, what you said here is the older I get, the more I realize I don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality for my life is that you think the older we get, the more we know it's the more wisdom we have to know what we don't know. And that's why I'm entering a phase of life, you know, this midpoint of, of my life where I'm now realizing how much I still have to learn. And I'm, I'm kind of excited about that next chapter. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, number four, invite others into your life. And I'm guessing this is more than just having, you know, friends and family. Are you talking words like intimacy and vulnerability, accountability, counsel? Is that the essence here? Absolutely. Uh, and, and, and kind of a, 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 a mindset of hospitality. 
Mm. I mean, in some ways, this is, again, sort of helping others, uh, but but inviting others into your life. Uh, I know when, when we want to have people over to the house, sometimes my wife and I are like, oh, goodness, we get, you know, we have to clean up, we have to make sure the house is good, we have to, you know, wash the dishes, get the silverware out, and it's it's a burden. But then in the end, we're always so happy when we do it because we've had friends and family over. We get to kind of enjoy the wonderful moments of life. Uh, So I think taking more advantage of those opportunities. But then to go even deeper, part of the, the, the purpose of this practice is to connect us to a community. And this is actually a few of the practices. One of the underlying themes behind it is community. People who belong to a house of worship, so I'll use house of worship here, but I, I think this applies to other kinds of communities as well. People who are connected to a community live on average seven years longer, mm. and they tend to be more charitable and more and happier. And I think part of that is it, we, when we are hospitable, when we have people over to our home, when we spend time socializing with others, we bring ourselves out of our shell. And we are, we, we are more connected and, and we're social animals, right? We, we, we are built in order to find connection. I think that's part of, you know, that that's almost a faith precept, but I think science would prove that as well. Um, the only day on the, on the whole day of creation, when it, 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 the only day that's described as not good is the one where Adam is created alone right? That, that it, it's not good that Adam doesn't have a, a, a partner. So I think we are built for relationships. And I think this practice of inviting people into our lives, you know, keeps that in the forefront of our minds. And I, and I got to say, we've been, my wife and I've been doing a lot of research about this whole concept of inviting others in because we think because of social media that we've invited people into our lives. I mean, young people have thousands of friends, but yet research shows that they've never felt more lonely than any generation of young people in the history of research. And so I think that's, that's research in young people where they've got these thousands of friends on their phone, but they feel incredibly lonely. So I just want to emphasize that I think inviting others into your life is more than friending them on Facebook or social media. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's huge. Well, number, number five, in the same aspect of community, uh, be there when others need you. And again, as an ingredient for, for happiness, being there when others, need, I, I wonder if some people hear this and feel like they're worn out, uh, you know, from being there too much for other folks. Uh, yeah, especially you as a, as, as a rabbi, I'm sure you're, you're needed a lot. Um, but how, again, how, where is the psychological component of that, that leads to our happiness as opposed to, I guess, just stay into our own. Right. I think part of it is because we're built for service. You know, part of us finds fulfillment in going outside of ourselves. When we help serve others' needs, we are filling ourselves up. This isn't true for everybody. It's true for everybody to degrees. Some people find greater happiness in serving others, uh, whereas others find less. Uh, this is one of the, the points I make throughout the book is unless you're an absolute saint, you're never going to be able to do all 10 of these practices consistently. There are times in life where we're going to be focusing on one practice more than another. You know, if we're, if we're uh, you know, lifelong learning, if our kids are grown and it's just our wife uh, and ourselves in our homes, we can take classes. Like my parents go and take classes at different universities and go on trips, you know, educational kinds of trips, they can really devote themselves to that. It's hard to do that when you are a young family with 
teenagers or kids under 10. So we can't do everything, but it is important to find ways to serve in the community and being there where others, when others need you really cement deep relationships. I tell a story in the book about someone in my congregation. Her husband was a a very successful attorney, ambassador, I mean, just a really an incredible pillar of civic life. And they were, had such a busy social calendar and he died suddenly and, you know, was a humongous funeral. Um, A lot of sort of leading figures in the, in the city were there. And then basically about a month later, her phone had stopped ringing and people had just really not, you know, they forgot about her except for a couple of people who stayed in touch and, and were there for her. And those became her closest friends. And so it being there for other people when they need us cements relationships in a profoundly deep way. And I think if we can do that, we can't do that for everybody. Right. Uh, I talk about, you know, sort of our 2 a.m. friends, uh, people that we can call at 2 a.m. in the morning and, and for anything that can't be everybody. But we need a few of those people. Well, this next one is interesting. Celebrate good times by proxy of it being there. I'm going to have to think that we often have good times that we just don't. Is that, again, a, a taking for granted aspect? Yeah. Or or we we. um we just kind of dismiss it. I think sometimes, um, I don't know, we could let's, this is sort of related to, to number four hospitality, but let's say we get invited to a party and we're, we think to ourselves, ah, too tired. I don't really want to go. I don't know the person that well. Uh, and we don't versus if we do, and we have a wonderful experience and, and we see and experience others joy. I think that makes a big difference. Right. And so there's, I talk about in the book, there's these mirror neurons. And as a rabbi, I've noticed a lot of people who I marry, many of them met at another person's wedding. Like maybe one was a bridegroom and one was a bridesmaid, or they were both just guests there and they met. And I don't think that's accidental. I think that there's something like the joy of the couple getting married spreads in some way among the people there and it creates a different kind of attraction. Now, this is my own, uh, uh, you know, mirror neurons. Scientists have have shown that there are mirror neurons where we mirror somebody's emotions, but this is my own uh, suspicion that people who meet at a wedding are more likely to get married than say people who meet at a bar or meet, uh, you know, at a coffee house. So uh, I, I think giving ourselves those opportunities will make our lives happier in the long run. Well, this next one, number seven, it says support yourself and others during times of loss. And first run, I thought, okay, supporting others during time of loss is very similar to number five, be there when others need you, but you start off with support yourself during times Mm -hmm. of loss. That's, uh, that's interesting. It kind of, kind of harkens back to our, our beginning conversation of, uh, you know, dive. Well, like you talked about journaling about some of the trials or hardships to, to, to create a better story in in a sense, but so explain that more, the supporting yourself aspect. That's hard. It's a, it's everyone in life experiences loss. Just like we talked about earlier that people experience failures. Everyone experiences loss at one point or another. Um, could be the loss of a friend, the loss of a parent, and it's the hardest, it's some of the hardest times in the world. And we need to, we need to find ways 
to support ourselves, be it um, taking time off, being finding a community where we can, I mean, I just literally met a few days ago with somebody who was new in my, um, it, it, at our synagogue. She had just moved here and then she lost a, a close friend back home where she came from. And she was struggling because she hadn't found the people here to be her support system and community. So I told her she needs to take the time to do that. And so we need to find ways to help us get through those difficult times because we will experience losses. Uh, So we have to take care of ourselves. And this is where I think as a rabbi, I think Judaism, the Jewish framework provides such a great sort of toolkit. There's a whole series of actions that happen after somebody dies. There's a, there's something called Shiva where people are in their homes and people come and visit them. Uh, And in Jewish law, it's very interesting. If you go and visit somebody who has experienced a loss, you are not supposed to start a conversation with that person. You're supposed to wait until they start a conversation with you because you don't want to be a burden to them. You're there to support them. They're not that, you know, usually when we have people over to our house, we entertain them. But when you go to visit a Shiva house, you're there to comfort them. So I think that that Jewish wisdom and tradition has some great insights on how we can deal with loss. And we don't have to be Jewish to benefit from it. That's one of the reasons I wrote, wrote this book, because I think there's such richness uh, for the modern world in these, in these uh, Jewish wisdom practices. Absolutely. Um, well, this, this next one is a pray with intention. And I got to tell you, that one hit me because I know it's a struggle. Uh, praying is, is one thing, praying with a specific expecting, which is a, a biblical mandate, expecting that God will answer, uh, yes. whether it's the way I want or not, but that he will answer. This is a, this is a hard area, uh, for me. And, and that one, uh, I don't know how, how alone I am. I in that prayer is hard. You know, it is, it, it can be so difficult, um, in those, especially in trying times. And I think if we can pray with a sense of purpose and intention, uh, it makes prayer more meaningful. Uh, but, but it is a struggle. I, I, I wrote this in many ways, you know, this book appeals to a religious audience, but it's also for people that are kind of spiritual, but not religious where they think the word prayer and they, they're a little uncomfortable with it. But I want them to see prayer as, as a way of having a conversation with God, with saying things that we can't really, you know, every person in life, even our, our spouse, you know, we can say most things, but there are certain feelings that we can only bring to God. So praying with that intention and letting it out of our, of our sort of externalizing it, getting it out of ourselves and our brains, it can relieve a certain kind of burden. So that's what, that's one of the things I was aiming for in this chapter. Yeah. Well, number nine is forgive. And that one, and we were talking about <laughs> happiness, where does forgiveness ring in? I thought, oh my gosh, that's got to be, that's got to be a primary, you know, root of, of, of happiness or, or lack thereof. And I, I wonder, you know, when I really think about that word, sometimes I, it's, it's, if somebody has an acute person, obviously that they have a problem with and then you need to forgive and there's a, there's an abuse or there's, there's something significant or again, very acute. That's one thing, but I imagine there's a lot of people like myself, there's not a lot of big things that, that happened 
where would you bet that for most folks, myself included, where forgiveness comes in that I may be, I may be missing it. Oh boy, this is, this is a really hard one. Uh, I think everyone has issues with forgiveness. I, I see it all the time. Um, families that are broken apart uh, over something somebody said. Um, and I think to me, the most practical thing we can do is try to focus on the future. And sometimes we, we get in denial. We, we prefer not to think about what we might have done to contribute to, to somebody's situation or to, to a broken relationship. And we just kind of ignore it. We set it in the past, kind of like what we talked about earlier, where sometimes we just set things in the past uh, and we move on to the future, but there's some health in grappling with what happened in the past. And I think that's healthy when it comes to forgiveness. Um, and I think Jewish law actually is very interesting that Judaism and Christianity have great insight, great wisdom on forgiveness. And really, it's about creating peace in the here and now. It's saying, Whatever happened in the past, we value shalom. We value peace now. So let's let's not try to put blame on it. Let's admit, you know, in any kind of relationship, sometimes it's more important to be effective than to be right. And I think that's true when we seek forgiveness. Stop. We need to stop trying to just justify ourselves that we're right. Let's focus on creating shalom, creating an effective balance. And I I think a lot of biblical metaphors about this. Being a rabbi, I look to the Old Testament and I think of Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob essentially stole Esau's birthright. He tricked Esau into giving him the birthright. And Esau had every reason to be so angry at Jacob. Jacob fled and he left. And then 20 years later, they reunite and Esau is at peace. He doesn't say to Jacob, why'd you do that to me? Jacob knows what he did was wrong, but they're at peace. But then here's the important thing. They're not best friends anymore. They, li- they not, not that they ever were best friends, but forgiveness doesn't mean that you have to be best friends. It means you can go on with life. In some ways, forgiveness is a religious word for moving on. So we have to create a way of moving on, finding that peace. And um, Jacob and Esau are a great model where you know, the wrongs are still there. And the pain is probably still there, but they've learned to live in peace. What I like about what you're saying is, is that uh, moving on gives me a practical word picture because I think so many people, and I've been guilty of this as well, and I say, oh, I've forgiven them, but I really haven't. Like I didn't do anything to forgive them. I just flipped it out there and said, oh, I forgave them. And I think it, it has to be more than that, or you're not really forgiven. In fact, you're kind of shackled to you know, that event, you know, for forever until you actually let it go and move on. And I think, I think people listening to this, um, the practical aspect of have you moved on without the baggage and the change that are binding you to that event or that circumstance or that person or that hurt. Um, and that's, that's really the, the definition of if you've forgiven. Oh, huge. And one other thing, that's so good, Mark. And one other thing that I uh, talked about is also when we people ask us for forgiveness, we should grant it. And then there's a, there's a principle in Jewish law that if you seek forgiveness from somebody and they reject you, they don't give you forgiveness, you go back again and they reject you, then you go back a third time. And if they reject you that third time, 
it's as if that you've been forgiven. You know, we are, God expects us to forgive. So in Jewish law, we have to seek forgiveness from somebody we've hurt, but if they refuse to grant it after three attempts, we're good. So there are limits, right? We, 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 in a way, God wants us to be able to go on. Very cool. Very cool. Very cool. Well, this last one, number 10, look inside and commit. I did have to get into the book and read through a little bit to even to understand enough to comment on that. And you actually state it in the book then as uh, discernment and commitment. Mm-hmm. And you go on to say ongoing discernment of what is inside of us uh, and, and, and attention to our commitments, give life meaning. In other words, if you seek meaning and happiness, uh, then look inside and commit to that path. So, you know, in this world of personal development and inspiring true performance, that's what the show's about, that's what Ziggler's about, and seeking to know and live out our callings. It's so easy to get caught up in what other people are doing. And we talked about comparison before, and then what we should be doing, uh, again, yeah, by comparison. But even in understanding this ideal, how how do you propose we understand enough about ourselves to truly discern what is best for us? I think so many people, they get the concept, but... They just, they, they run into a, a wall of, of, of just, they don't know how to understand themselves, uh, to discern themselves, to be confident in a decision and in a path. So that looking inside doesn't, it's not a small endeavor. Oh, very hard. But also a lot of people just avoid it. I mean, we, we're in the field of personal development. So we know the power of introspection of looking inside, but so many people just, don't want to go there. And so showing people the value of if you look inside yourself and ask the why questions, why did I choose to do this? Why, why did I make this particular decision? That's sort of the first step. And I think we can always ask why a lot. Now we have to have limits. There's a, there's an amount of practicality, but exploring our insides, our, our, our soul, where we can grow as human beings is a huge first step. And then one of the other practices I, I talk about in, the, in that chapter is experimental innovation, that we should try new things, uh, try new practices. And if they don't work, we can slow down on them, right? The, you know, uh, my wife uh, tried yoga, I think it was about a year ago. It didn't, it didn't do anything for her. And then she, you know, did something else. So it, it, part of a, of a, of a growth mindset is experimenting and, and trying different things. And I think that's part of the ongoing process of, of discernment, right? We don't, we're, we're not going to just automatically find the answer. We're going to constantly be growing and changing to be comfortable with that, um, that's that in some ways is why faith is so important because faith gives us that ultimate comfort. It almost gives us the, the, the kind of this, this idea that the universe has our backs. And because of that, God has our backs and, and, and we can experiment and grow. And that's, that's what I wanted to get at in this chapter. Well, and the next part of that then is commitment. And I love how you in there said, uh, the point is committing to a practice, multiple practices, actually. And this is of course, immensely, as we all know, very Ziggler esque in those daily positive, healthy habits. So you're saying we discern our path. Then we commit to specific practices that will take us forward on this path. Maybe even just in that aspect to give an example, whether it's in your own life or in somebody else's. 
Right. Here's here's a, a easy example, and it's actually I, I included it um, as sort of a bonus for people who who uh, pre-order the book or order it during the first week. I send a gratitude template. So there is a practice where we write down every day three things we are grateful for. This has been shown to improve our sense of well-being by 40%. And this persists over four weeks, eight weeks, a year. There's been several studies on this. So simply like a gratitude journal, it's, it can take three minutes. It can take five minutes. But reminding ourselves, gratitude refocuses our brain on what we have rather than what we desire. And so taking that time to write down three things we're grateful for. I, I do it every morning. Some people do it at night. Me, I wake up in the morning. I, I have a cup of coffee and then I sort of write down what were three things that happened yesterday that I'm grateful for. It not only puts me in a good mood, but it kind of focuses the whole day on, on gratitude. And so those kinds of commitments make a huge difference. Well, that is, uh, those 10 things are significant though. I want to, as we wrap up here, draw people to at the end of the book is, is a significant gift. It's in essence, a workbook and quiz to get started. It's a, it's a quick start guide. And, uh, I mean, obviously folks read the book, but, uh, you can, you wouldn't go too wrong. Also, if you want to flip to the back and, and start there, cause it's going to push you into, uh, the book, but it's the happiness quick start guide. And, uh, and rabbi takes us through the 10 steps with some baby steps, literally again, a workbook and quiz to go through the principles of the book. And I was curious, and I know the book has just come out. So, uh, but I know you've had some people go through that. And as they go through that quick start guide, I'm curious as to what are some of the first things that come up for them insights or, or concerns? Does it just kind of reveal like, Oh my gosh, I'm violating so many aspects of happiness or <laughs> is it confirming? Or? I have noticed okay. what has surprised me the most is people found the chapter on honoring father and mother, people found that to be the most powerful. I did not expect that. Because one of the things I point out in that chapter is that there's a difference between honor and love. And, and I, I love my parents. I'm very lucky. I have wonderful parents. I try to be a good parent. But a lot of people struggle with that. But honoring father and mother is something that we can all try to do. And for whatever reason, the people that read the initial drafts and did those exercises, they really found comfort in that chapter. To me, my favorite chapter is the chapter on kindness, because that's really where I'm focusing my life these days. That's kind of my, my, my personal focus right now where I'm discerning I need the most work. But that chapter really opened up a lot of um, insights for people. That's incredibly interesting. Mark, that, that fits in a Ziegler family pretty well. Uh, it fits into Ziegler family very well. And in fact, uh, I just want to say, uh, you know, I know we're coming to the close here that uh, I want to just you really do a, a solid shout out uh, for just what you put of yourself into this book. And there's no doubt this is going to impact a lot of people. I want to encourage everybody listening to get the book because you, you won't be disappointed. You'll find it hard to put down and you'll find yourself, you know, in some of these chapters and you can really hone in and do the work that you need to do. And, and honestly, in the seasons of life, you'll, you'll find yourself doing different work at different seasons of life. Just like you were talking about kindness. You know, I'm in this phase of learning. You know, there's, there's so much more that I want to learn so that I can impact those around me and, and share with them. And so, uh, so we're, we're all in different seasons and there's something in there for everybody. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for giving us your time and sharing with, with this audience, this congregation, and uh, excited about the book and that it's hitting the market right now. And folks, you go to Rabbi Moffick, that's M-O-F-F-I-C, and you can uh, get engaged with him there, uh, with what he's doing, what's going on. You can buy the book there. Of course, you can buy that wherever you do buy books as well. But uh, Rabbi, thank you so much uh, for uh, bringing us your art. Thank you. It's an honor to to be to do this with you and to be associated with uh, the Ziegler name and the Ziegler family from whom I've learned so much. So thank you. Uh, our honor. Our honor. Okay. Well, Mark, that was significant, uh, of course. And I, you know, I, I was thinking about what is the what is the thing that actually stuck out to me? And I, I think the biggest thing is just the fact that yeah, happiness, do we look at, do I look at it as just some organic thing? You know, Hey, if I in general am achieving whatever I'm, I'm, I'm happy as opposed to no, there are a, a, intentional things that I must do. If I want the, the most happiness, there's certain ingredients and I have to daily pursue them. I mean, it makes sense, but it's just not how I at least naturally come to the thought of happiness. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that, and I got that out of it as well. But here's something that I really took away from this, and that is sometimes there's something preventing us from happiness. There's some kind of a, 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 a hurdle or a roadblock, and we, we're so into our world, our own life, that we can't see it. You know, it's like that, it's that log in our eye, and we can't even see it because it's in our eye. And so what I loved about him breaking down the 10 things that really contribute to this is that you can dive into the book, do a quick read over those 10, and all of a sudden you've got your aha. Oh, this is this is what's preventing me. This is that 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 wedge that's keeping me from moving forward. Let me camp out here for a while and do some hard work so that I can break free of that. And I think that's what I got out of it because some of the 10, I'm like, yeah, I've got that. And then some of the 10 were like a smack in the face going, oh, yeah. I got to go back and spend some more time there. And I think that's part of the whole happiness thing is we, we know we're not happy, but we don't know why. And sometimes we know we are happy and we don't know why. And knowing the why I think is part of what can help us stay on that journey towards happiness. Absolutely. I love that way of looking at it and not just looking at the list and, and trying to check things off, but just going through with a review of, okay, where am I weak or sabotaging myself? That, that's, that's a great perspective. Well, uh, it's significant folks. Again, go to rabbi, R A B B I Moffick, M O F F I C, com where you can uh, get the book and, and get involved with, with him. Uh, well, coming up is show 485 next week. We'll be taking a Ziegler principle from one of our interview guests, posting it on Facebook, asking how people, you know, have struggled with it, overcome that principle. And then my co-host Michelle Prince and I will share the comments with you in the show and discuss some of the real world issues that we all face in regards to that. Uh, thanks again for all the great reviews. We count on you guys to tell others about the show. Will you continue to do that? Share the shows that, that uh, give you a lot of value and leave a rating or review in iTunes. And I thank you in advance. Well, Mark, always a gift to do this as we walk with each other, striving to inspire our true performance. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Appreciate you very much. 